Ladies and gentlemen, 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 gentlemen. you are now listening to the P13 Podcast. What's going on, listeners? This is part two of our discussion with Dr. Shannon O'Grady, where we delve a little deeper into more nutrition topics, such as some bad diets, uh, some macronutrients, and our lightning round of questions. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. I think nutrition in general is undertaught, both for sure, you know, in the early our early years in school, but also all the way through medical school, right? Mm -hmm. Like doctors aren't even, and it may be different now, but doctors aren't even given, I think, as many nutrition courses as they should. I've, to really I, I always, to... I've always heard they need just one credit. <laughs> yeah. So I've heard that too. And that's why I say, I, I'm not sure what's going on now because I hope it's changed, but right. I have no idea. But right, like it, that's the baseline for so many diseases that are of like major concern looking at the health of uh, the U.S. of the population yeah. that at least knowing how to help somebody or refer them to a registered dietitian or someone that can help them work through the baseline cause of a lot of these diseases that have metabolic impacts, I think is extremely important. You know, we're, we're definitely in the, a society where Band-Aids and just giving someone a prescription is the easy way out when in reality you could change someone's life by teaching them to eat correctly. So right. I think all of those things, lack of education on nutrition at all levels, making nutrition decisions based on convenience, and then also just not being a society that is not active, that spends too much time on the screen, that spends too much time indoors. I think all of those things end up being an issue compounded um, by each other. Yeah. And would you say some like how that, would you say some of those factors end up bringing up some of these like more fad type diets like Ooh. keto, paleo? Let's talk about intermittent those. Fast, fasting because everyone's trying to like get to something pretty magic quick. Pill. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No They're trying to biohack. Trying to yeah. biohack. So Fad diets. Let's talk about those. We wrote down a few. If there's any other that you've heard from clients a lot, we'd definitely love to hear about those because I'm sure some of our people have, you know, had exposure to those as well. But let's start with the big one. Elephant in the room. Keto. What's up? Oh. <laughs> yeah. My feelings. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't know where to start. Um, Just go yeah, for it. I, I know. I'd say for I most it. people, I, okay, so baseline, this is just a general statement. A lot of people are like going to be like, oh, about it. But if you want to lose weight, you need to be in a caloric deficit. Mm -hmm. There are many ways to be in a caloric deficit. Keto is a way to be in a caloric deficit. If you lose weight on a keto diet, guess what? It's because you were in a caloric deficit. It's not because there's anything special about the keto diet. Mm -hmm. Same thing true with the carnivore diet or the paleo diet or yep. whatever you want to eat. No matter what diet, diet you're on, <laughs> the liver diet. you lose weight, you're in a caloric deficit. Um, and that being said, certain people can create that caloric deficit 
more easily with different ways of eating. So if the keto diet works better for you because you don't really eat sweets anyways, and what you tend to eat are like heavier foods, then if that eating style is a more sustainable way for you to kind of function as a human, I'm not against it. I tend to be not a huge fan of any diet that limits the amount of fruit and vegetables you eat uh, personally, but I think if it gets you to a better place and that you be, you have a healthier body composition and you're able to move more, and the only way that you can do that is through a keto diet, I'm not against it. When it comes to athletes being on the keto diet, that um, specifically is is something that kind of bugs me a little bit because I think people don't really understand. It gets back to this demonizing of carbohydrates and people don't really understand the importance of carbohydrates in fueling the majority of forms of activity. I think maybe the one exception I would make is if you're a serious endurance athlete and fat adaptation is something you're actively working on both through your diet and through your training, then in that context, a keto diet could make sense. But for the majority of athletes, it doesn't make sense because carbohydrates are essential to performing well. That would be my spiel on the, on the keto diet. That's a good spiel. Uh, follow up to the spiel. So you said that if that works well for someone, that's, that's great. I guess a caveat to that, like we were just talking about the question that person would have to ask, is that sustainable? Right. Yeah. And then also, is there, in your experience, have you seen this or maybe read research on it? Is there anything that can happen like negatively while on the keto diet? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think they've done enough long-term studies, at least that I'm aware of on people on the keto diet to have, any major negative issues. I mean, I know, for instance, your body like releases a ton of sodium when you're on the keto diet because your insulin levels are so low. So mm. sodium replacement is really important. I think that making sure that you're not deficient in any micronutrients because you're potentially cutting back on micronutrient dense foods like, you know, vegetables and fruits, I think that's important to pay attention to. Anytime when you're limiting major food groups, especially when it's vegetables and fruits, it's important to also get a nutrient panel, a blood panel done every so often to see where you are on, on the, your vitamin and mineral intake. But as far as I know, I haven't seen any long-term consequences published yet. Mm -hmm. I don't follow that body of research. So if, if you guys know, if you know of one, Thomas, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, I can't say that I know specifically other than like, I, I feel like I know some people that have done it or tried to do it. The other funny thing about that is most people that say they're going keto are just not because they're consuming too much protein to actually get into ketosis. So they, for a long time, I thought that too, but they've actually done studies where with high protein um, diets. Mm. that have low carbohydrates okay. and the re I'm assuming the reason why you're saying that is because high when you're consuming high levels of protein amino acids can actually be turned into glucose yeah. through gluconeogenesis yep. um but even on high protein diets you get enough ketone production because of the low carbohydrates that you can still be in ketosis. interesting okay um, 
I initially thought that as well. Yeah. I was always like, you're consuming way too much protein. Right, right. But I have since, at least with where the research is, been had my mind changed on that. Got it. But well, yeah, I think most people I know that are on the keto diet have these periods where they come off of it and eat like shit. Yeah. Like just eat yep. tons of carbs. Yeah. And that gets back to the like, if you're going to do something extreme, the pendulum's going to swing exactly. the other way. Yeah. And it's like, it's could you it. integrate carbs into your diet in a healthy, sustainable way right. so that you weren't overeating? I'd rather see more reasonable carb intake for the long term, not demonizing cookies, right? Yeah. yeah. Then see these crazy wild swings where you have to like, oh, now I feel so bad and I've gained all this water weight and I am have inflammation all over all my body. I'm like, that's because you just ate eight donuts. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, no, it, it, I, yeah, I, yeah. that's the thing that irks me is, is the, the keto diet gets, gets a, all these wonderful things get attributed to it. When one weight loss is often associated just with water loss because yeah. you're not storing as much glycogen. Yep. And two, as soon as you're off the keto diet, you don't go to a nice, healthy, normal diet. No. You go to a completely shitty processed food, high sugar, high carb diet. So of yeah. course you're going to feel awful. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, that's just not reasonable comparison. Well, yeah. And the other thing that I see when people are, when pe I, I've known people that have tried to do keto, it does seem that their performance kind of is impacted and not like these people that, that I'm thinking of were like extremely high performers, but like they definitely didn't progress during that time. And if anything, they seemed a bit like flat energy wise. Um, you know, so that I think could be the other thing. If like you're an individual that just does not respond well to high fat, low carb, you know, your performance can pretty quickly start to decline. Yeah. And, and let's be clear on something too, right? So aerobic, you know, your body can use, we talked about the creatine phosphagen pathway, when we were talking about creatine, the other major energy pathways your body uses to create ATP when you're exercising are aerobic metabolism and anaerobic metabolism. So aerobic metabolism is what you use up to your aerobic threshold, which is where your body cannot bring in enough oxygen to support your, your energetic needs. So you have to start producing energy from another source without oxygen. Aerobic metabolism can use both carbohydrate and fat to produce energy. It should be noted that fat takes more oxygen to turn into energy because fat inherently doesn't have any oxygen. Mm. And it also is important to note that once you kick over to that anaerobic, and, and it's not necessarily like one stops and the other one turns on, they're happening at the same time. Yeah. But your body cannot burn fat anaerobically. It cannot. It's incapable. It can only burn carbohydrate anaerobically. Yeah. And so when you get into those higher intensity activities where anaerobic metabolism kicks on, if you are a keto athlete and your body does not have carbohydrates, you cannot function at that. You're flat because your body can't burn fat mm -hmm. anaerobically. So you don't have that extra gear to push into. Yeah. So for anything, any sport where anaerobic uh, metabolism is an important contribution to energetic requirements. Keto makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. And that's why I said the one case where it might make some sense, and still I would argue for fat adaptation over a keto diet, is, is for an endurance athlete. Like we just talked about gluconeogenesis. If someone is keto, would their body 
be able to generate glucose through that process if they from from i guess from stored carbohydrates or stored muscle or i guess they wouldn't have any yeah i mean it's a great question but i'm not sure people are i'm not sure you would take in enough protein to then store Got the it. glucose that's produced from those amino acids as yeah. glycogen got it so and, most likely you'd still hit a wall yeah 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 that makes sense so another fad diet this is kind of an older one and there it's not necessarily a bad one but uh paleo thoughts on that yeah i mean i once again you know i gave my cookie spiel so obviously i'm not like a paleo <laughs> could have paleo believer. cookies <laughs> i think yeah i mean i think that there can be some good concepts in paleo like the whole foods um, kind of idea the whole foods yeah. yeah i think not eating a lot of processed foods incorporating more fats you know as a culturally we went through the fat shaming snack well period of the 80s and 90s you know yep. and now we're in the carbohydrate shaming phase yep. but next up um, it's protein <laughs> yeah, exactly. and then we're all dead and then we're all dead water <laughs> water's next yeah um <laughs> But yeah, so I think it did with the paleo diet, you saw people more accepting of the importance of fat in our diets yeah. and I, and also the importance of protein. And so I, I think those two things are really important. I just said important three times, uh, are, are, are really good concepts for athletes to grasp and accept and to get away from, you know, any macronutrient shaming. But once again, I'm not a big fan of demonizing foods yeah. and, and that, that I, I feel like the paleo diet does that with kind of these more simple sugars and, For sure. and things like that. Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. Are there any other fad diets that you have really encountered a lot in working with people? You know, maybe you have clients that you're working with and they're like, Hey, I'm trying this diet. What do you think? You know, is there one that has commonly come across your your plate i'd say the keto diet is the thing i come across most yeah. um, often a lot of people ask about intermittent fasting which with that i'm not like once again i think there are grades of how you view intermittent fasting mm -hmm. i think depending on your activity level you really need to make sure you're getting in the fuel that you need given what your body what you're asking your body to do but i think if you look at intermittent fasting more in terms of timing your eating window. There's a lot of really interesting research on how shortening your eating, eating window, even to something as, you know, which I think is pretty reasonable as 12 hours yeah. can have a, a number of beneficial effects because of the relationship of eating to the circadian rhythm, yep. even as, as far as improving sleep quality. And so I think there are benefits like that that don't require going to extremes. Once again, I haven't made it clear I'm not a fan of extremes. <laughs> that can be good. You know, it's just when 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 it, it does work for some people, Thomas, you and I both have a friend that has pretty drastic, uh, you know, eating pretty drastically small eating window, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that it has worked for them. And so I'm not saying that it's not not a possibility for people it's when you see drastic changes someone goes from eating 14 hours a day to trying to 
to eat in six hours yeah. that you get this like crazy pendulum like behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally, once again, if you're seeing improvements in your weight, that's what you're focusing on. Guess what it's because of? Calorie caloric intake. <laughs> Did you right. have to decrease to a six hour window? No. No, if yeah. you looked at, you know, how to do that in a more reasonable way that was sustainable, yes. yes. So so not inherently bad, but I just worry about people doing that and really being able to fuel their bodies effectively and, and also set themselves up for recovery in when training is kind of like a two a day or even mm-hmm. every day, like six days a week kind of scenario. Yeah, and I've had my experiences with intermittent fasting. I have noticed uh, that um, it is hard to get all my caloric needs in a small time window. And usually what ends up happening is, well, a couple things. One, during that time window, I have to eat so much that I'm almost uncomfortable. And then maybe that interferes with my sleep or something like that. And then two, I do wonder if it's, you know, and we'll talk maybe a little bit more down the line about muscle protein synthesis, but I do wonder if it's fueling my muscle as much as, as much as I could be if I was having more frequent protein feedings. So I definitely could see that. And I suppose for some people, it's kind of like, it it varies on the person. Maybe someone can, maybe it's based on body type, but someone could, could fast for fairly long periods of time and hang on to more muscle. Whereas I feel like with me, I feel like it, I lose muscle easier than some people. So not sure if you've seen differences in people like that, that are able to retain lean mass better. could be genetics versus other people have any, any experience or exposure to that. Yeah. I mean, I think typically what I think what you're alluding to is, especially with the muscle protein synthesis is, is most of the research shows that consistent consumption of protein across like something like a 12 hour eating window gives you higher levels of muscle protein synthesis as a whole. And so were you to restrict that time frame, you would have greater periods where that muscle protein synthesis was bottoming out. Yeah. And that would lead to, you know, potentially loss of muscle, but at the very least, limits on your functional adaptation to the training that you're doing. Yeah. I think limiting your feeding window could make more sense in that whole fat adaptation, endurance athlete type individual where, and I know we, we work with some endurance athletes at gnarly that eat kind of more keto like diets and do more kind of limited feeding windows and do a lot of long, slow distance training. And in doing that, they're trying to increase their body's capacity to burn uh, fat and to increase their cardiovascular efficiency at lower heart rates so that they can burn fat for longer. And those two really work hand in hand. And so in that context, it would make sense for that type of training adaptation. But I think if you're a strength athlete, if your interest is in maintaining and putting on muscle to support your activities, you know, the activities you like to do, then it's, it's going to be harder to do that. The more you restrict that feeding window. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So you touched on it earlier, uh, with, 
I mean, I mean, we've we've kind of touched it on this whole this last carbs, little carbs, bit carbs. here. Carbs, carbs, carbs. We're all having cookies afterwards. Oh yes, <laughs> you got to share a picture of you having a cookie. Yes, all, the three of us have to share it. Yes. <laughs> um. So I guess one of the bigger questions that's always asked around uh, carbohydrates: Can it actually cause weight gain? Yeah, I mean, I um. So. What causes weight gain? Do carbs cause weight gain or does a caloric Calorie surplus, surplus cause weight gain? Calorie well surplus. Done. Absolutely. Well done. So carbs inherently don't cause weight gain. This gets brought up a lot with insulin. And so I think a lot of people, it's like a buzzword, right? Mm -hmm. Carbs and insulin. And, yeah. Ooh, that's bad. But really we need insulin. Insulin is what tells when our blood sugar is too high. Insulin is the molecule that tells our cells to take that sugar in. And that's important for glycogen storage. That's really important for athletes that use that glycogen storage to fuel their efforts. And so what makes you fat or makes you gain weight is not inherently carbs or the response of insulin to carbohydrates. It's when you're over consuming carbs, when your glycogen storage is full, when you're not active, and when, let's say, way down the line, you become insulin insensitive that's when you start seeing problems with like metabolic disease. But if you're active and you're eating carbs in a reasonable manner, then insulin simply functions to tell your body to take those carbs into muscle cells, which will inevitably be used for energy during activity. Uh, Follow-up question to that. If you are in a caloric surplus, maybe it's a relatively mild one, we'll say 300 cows, can the composition of your macronutrients influence how much of that surplus is devoted to muscle gain and how much is devoted to fat gain? Like, so if you're having more carbs and you're spiking insulin more frequently while in a surplus versus like, maybe you don't, maybe you consume carbs at like, you you have four meals a day. Maybe two of those meals are carb-based or have carbs in them, and two don't, as opposed to those four meals all having carbs, so you're spiking insulin four times throughout the day. Can that in influence, I guess, mostly what I'm asking is like fat storage? Yeah, it might influence fat storage. I mean, I think what's important to know is that um, you can't gain more muscle simply by eating more protein. So you need the in increased carbohydrates as well. It's being in a hypercaloric state that really is the key to mass gain. So I don't know where that sweet pot spot is of adding more protein and adding more carbs. And when you could be adding more carbs, I would say for protein, we've talked about this, really important to divide it evenly throughout the day. And, you know, trying to get that caloric increase and make those carbs from higher nutrient quality carbs. So like where volume comes into the picture as well and micronutrient level comes into the picture as well. I think spiking your insulin gives you this idea of a high glycemic index cookie mm -hmm. where your blood glucose levels go way up. And therefore you see this spike of insulin, whereas 
that is not the reaction that we have to all forms of carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. So what is that form of 300 carbs? Are you talking about, or 300 calories of carbs? Are we talking about like highly processed carbs? Then yes, probably not a good idea. But if we're talking about 300 calories of complex carbs, that's not how your body's going to react. Got it. And I'm less worried about it. In yeah, that yeah. So almost a more specificity to that question is like the types of carbs also matters in terms of how your body will respond. And the combination of carbs with other things as well. Yeah. So yeah. eating those carbs alone versus having them as right. part of a diet that includes protein and fat is going to slow digestion. I like that answer. So I guess follow up question to that. The term glycemic variability, are you familiar with that? No. Okay. So um, that basically refers to, at least in the context that I've heard it used, um, essentially the fluctuation of blood sugar throughout the day. Is there, and this kind of has to do with carb timing. So I guess we could just kind of wrap this into one question. We have the post, well, we have the, the workout window time of consuming carbs that we've already established is a good time to consume carbs. Then beyond that, are there more beneficial times to consume carbs during the day than others? Like, for example, have you found that it's better for most people to consume carbs in the morning or at night or does it matter? So I will preface this by saying I don't work with people enough in my job, in my day to day to give you like a clear answer based on, you know, customers of Shannon's nutrition. Yeah, expertise. observational, right, yeah. Yeah, um, what I will say personally, and it goes back to those tenants that I tried to communicate early on, is um, I think carbs should be integrated throughout the day. I think those carbohydrates, vegetables are carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Vegetables are one of the micro, most <laughs> micronutrient-dense foods you can eat. You're getting vitamins and minerals your body needs. You're getting fiber that your gut needs. You're getting food that's you know high in water content. Um, I think those reasons alone, plus that you're getting this baseline glycogen storage and this lower level of insulin production because you don't see this huge spike in, in blood sugar, I generally recommend that people incorporate those throughout the day, you know, for all of those reasons. Um, and it's also just a greater volume of food, right? Right. Um, that, that's, that gets back to the suggestion of, you know, eating the rainbow and having the rainbow be half of your, half of your plate where the, you know, more simplified carbs that are going to have a greater impact on our blood glucose come into play is where timing is really important in terms of, of, uh, of how I view kind of, uh, sports nutrition. Mm -hmm. And that's before, especially if you haven't had a meal recently, boosting your blood glucose so you're ready to do whatever workout you have ahead of you, potentially during, depending on the length of that workout. You know, if it's if you've had plenty of time to eat earlier in the day and you had that pre-workout snack then potential and your workout is only an hour, then potentially you don't need another source of of simple carbs during your workout. But if it's a longer workout or and you haven't had uh, a lot of carbs previous to that, say it's first thing in the morning and you're you're fasted um, and you're on a two hour bike ride, then you may, may need more simple carbs during your ride um, in order to boost your blood glucose again. So you do not run through all your glycogen and hit a wall. 
and then post-exercise to replenish that glycogen quickly, which will help with recovery and, and turn around between workouts. So it's the simple carbs that I think, for me at least, where timing becomes important. Complex carbs, I think, should be integrated throughout your day. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. So then, I guess, follow up to that. Say Shannon is taking a rest day. Will you not consume cookies because it's a rest day and you don't have that intense activity? No, I still eat the cookies. Still eat the cookies. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, I'm, what, what is the cookies doing that's bad? Uh, potentially spiking blood sugar when you may not be using it in the near term. Yeah, but I'm also recovering from previous days of, of active work. And I know because I'm having that cookie, I'm not eating excess calories. Right? Got it. Got it. And okay. there's nothing wrong with my insulin response. Right. I'm insulin sensitive. I don't have metabolic disease. True. So So more so for somebody that if someone were to have issues with insulin, that that person would want to be a little bit more dialed in on on the consumption of those kinds of things. A hundred percent. Like especially if they're not being active in a 24, 48 hour period. Yep. Yeah. Makes sense. Cool. So I think if, if I convince you to eat more cookies, Thomas, I will have done my job today. <laughs> I'm, we're going to leave here and we're going to go to the nearest bakery oh, and get a dozen, street, a dozen cookies and just pound them, yeah. pound them and then go bench press. Ooh, and That's going to be a day. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> max bench. I think you might hit a max bench. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So then we can just kind of briefly touch on this, like, uh, uh, you know, some, some other hormones and nutrition are somewhat connected or they can be, do you have any specific knowledge of that or any, any kind of knowledge that you could provide? Is there, for example, is there, well, we can talk about calories and its influence on hormones. You kind of mentioned that earlier, but let's, let's talk a little bit more about that. Are there Negatives that can occur from overconsumption or underconsumption of calories. Sure. Definite negatives from underconsumption. I mean, I think I've personally experienced it. I used to weight cut for jujitsu tournaments and and I would always see hormone levels plummet um, as a consequence and then deal with the repercussions afterwards. So I think I would argue that that's a state of energy deficit even if you're doing a short-term weight cut and relative energy deficit syndrome, red S is um, something that's getting more and more uh, um, airtime or there more and more people are talking about it, especially in the context of in endurance sports, but in any sport where weight comes into play, I've seen it talked a lot about yeah. in climbing as well. Mm-hmm. And that's more of a longer term issue that can lead to health uh, consequences. But with something like red S, you know, one of the symptoms is in women, um, you know, loss of, of the menstrual cycle and that is directly related to decrease in hormones. So whether it's short-term caloric deficit or long-term caloric deficit can have a huge impact. So, yeah, you just mentioned menstrual cycles. So let's, we, we talked a little bit about that before coming on and we have a lot of females in the gym that we work with and probably a lot of female listeners as a result. So let's talk a little bit about that. How does your maybe nutrition uh, change as you go 
through your your cycle or what do you see with most females that you that you kind of know that maybe benefits them as they're eating throughout the the month yeah i mean i think one of the things that has gotten a lot of attention it doesn't necessarily relate to eating it relates to to injury risk during different phases of the menstrual cycle and then i think we can do things nutritionally to support that increase in in risk is you see this increased injury rate specifically in muscle and tendon injuries in the late follicular phase um and so supporting nutritionally like knowing that with making sure that we're hydrated making sure um that our bodies are given enough nutrition, so not under eating, making sure we get enough protein, and potentially considering something like collagen protein. Um, you know, those can be supportive and potentially reduce that risk. And then also just being aware that during that phase, there is that increased risk. And so paying attention to what you're doing, doing during that period. A lot of those studies have been done in soccer teams. Oh. Um, Okay. where they see this like reoccurring injury rate during this period of, you know, different players, uh, monthly cycles. Yeah. And would so that be related to, uh, like loss of blood volume or do you know why that? So I, I think it's ligament laxity. So I'm not an expert on this whatsoever, mm-hmm. but it's definitely true. Um, also, like if you look at pregnancy as an example, where you see this huge change in uh, in hormones, and as a woman's body gets ready to have a baby, having ligaments that are more lax or yeah. um, looser yeah. is a is a benefit. And so, um, I believe it could be wrong, but that higher estrogen levels, you see an increase in laxity. And so, during the follicular phase, which I is when estrogen is high. To me, that would make sense that you see an increase in injuries of this type because of this increase in laxity. And especially when playing sports that are as dynamic as something like like soccer. Right, right. Um, So have you changed, like, will you ever change your training based on where you're at in your cycle? I just listen to my body more. If I'm tired, I try to pay attention and maybe not push it scale back a little bit. Yeah. 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 It's good. That's very good perspective for the females that, that, that we work with. Okay. So let's talk about a little bit about protein and then we're going to get into some supplement talk. So we actually kind of touched on this earlier because you kind of gave your protein recommendations already. Point eight. Point. No, she said 1.5. 1.5. Oh yeah. Per kg. As a minimum. Yeah, as a min- it's, I typically recommend, depending on the goal, but like 1.5 to 1.6 is a minimum. And also depending on the age, the older athlete needs more protein, takes more protein to actually stimulate muscle protein synthesis in older athletes. So even though you might not be as active or your goal might not be to put on muscle mass, older individuals, both males and females, they tend to be closer to 1.8. Um, grams per kilo and potentially more because it takes almost double the amount of protein to get that same stimulation. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, I mean, we're getting old, so let's (laughs) up the protein. (laughs) Liver, raw liver diet. Raw liver diet. (laughs) So then this kind of relates to some of what we were talking about with feeding windows. 
so this this would apply to like if someone is trying to fast or something like that and they're trying to consume almost all their protein in maybe two sittings can your so we know how we we've talked about how it will impact muscle protein th- synthesis and you know the more times we do that throughout the day the better for muscle growth but is there a negative to consuming maybe say 60 70 grams of protein all at once in the sense that can your body just not absorb that entire amount so it's a myth that there's a limit to the amount that your body can absorb okay what is true is there's a limit to the benefit that you can get from that protein so there's a threshold to the stimulation of muscle protein synthesis they used to think it was around 25 to 30 grams there's some studies that shown in that it could be up to 40 grams. Mm-hmm. So let's say it's 25 to 40 grams. Mm-hmm. So even if you eat 60 to 70 grams of protein, you're still not getting that same stimulation. You're not getting any more stimulation yeah. than you got You've capped it from out. the 25 to 40 grams, yeah. which is why it makes way more sense as opposed to eating 60 grams at one sitting to eat to eat two servings of 30 grams separated by three hours. Because yeah. as opposed to getting this peak and then having it drop you're getting this peak and then as it starts coming down you're hitting that peak again and they did this really cool study uh with protein synthesis where they took i think it was like 80 grams of protein which for the group ended up being like at 1.5 grams per kilo and they divided it up into four three eating strategies in the first one it was like two meals of 40 grams of protein separated by well, say it was eight hours i don't remember yeah. but it was like skewed intake mm-hmm. The second group, it was 20 grams of protein separated by like three hours. It was the same time period. So maybe it was 12 hours in the first. So four meals of 20 grams separated by three hours. That would be 12 hours. And in in the last group, it was uh, 10 grams of protein every hour and a half. So it ended up being eight meals. Wow. And so in each case, right? They're all eating 80 grams of protein. They're all eating the exact same amount of protein. What differs is the timing in between the meals and the size of the meals. And where they saw the greatest level of muscle protein synthesis was in the second group. Mm -hmm. Because in the first group, you get these big peaks, but then you get a period of the day where your muscle protein synthesis levels are low Low, or at zero. In the last group, it's not enough protein to fully stimulate muscle protein synthesis to its max. And so the, the second group is kind of the perfect mix Yeah, is you get, it's enough protein that you hit the max, but you're getting it consistently throughout the day that you don't see the lows that you see in the first group. Yeah. So there's essentially two, like a minimum in terms of a minimum amount of grams of protein that you need to actually stimulate it, stimulate muscle protein th- synthesis to a significant degree, right? Like 10 grams right. is not really going to, going to do much not i mean it's better than nothing in some cases like that i usually recommend like try to get protein in with every snack for some people getting 20 to 25 grams of protein in is difficult in a snack so i'd rather have someone take in 10 grams than not take in anything but yeah it's ideal to get to at least 20 grams yeah and then also does that threshold potentially change dependent on an individual's size and muscle mass no 
I mean, they no. did the one study, they've done one study where they were looking to see if amount of muscle mass changed that threshold. And I think that was the study where they showed that 40 grams, it, it might not be the 25 grams everybody thought it was, that 40 grams could be where that threshold is. But generally, it's thought that that stimulation is independent of size. Mm, interesting. So the mountain needs the same, uh, half Thor Bjornsson, <laughs> needs the same amount of protein as me to get the same level of protein synthesis. He doesn't, uh, yes. Yeah, I would say that doesn't mean, right? His caloric intake is different than yours. And his, Got it. Th and thus his protein intake will be more than, than yours. So his meals may look like, I don't know how much that dude weighs, but let's say he's taking <laughs> he's light now. 200, <laughs> let's say he's taking in, uh, you know, like he weighs like what, maybe 300 pounds. Yeah. So like, I think he's sitting he at 280 these days. Okay. So if he were at like, if he were at a pound of right, 2.2 grams of protein per kilo body mass is a pound of protein mm -hmm. per butt per pound or it's a pound of protein per pound of body. Yeah. Mass. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be like 280. And so, so how does, how does he know, split that up? Exactly. So he would still, his, his minimum threshold is still going to be 30 to 40 grams per snack or meal. But in order to have a calorically rounded diet and get the total amount of calories that he needs, of course, he's going to eat more protein. If he only had, you know, 150 grams of protein, he would have way too many carbs and probably way too much fat. Right. Mm, yeah. So I think that threshold is the same, but the total amounts are affected more by body what size. your body needs to support it. Yeah. Yeah. Also, maybe he's on, some ergogenic aids. I don't know. I'm not calling out Hafthor Bjornsson on this show, but I just don't know. That would be another, I guess, question. Would that be influenced if someone is on something like testosterone? Would that, does that change their muscle protein synthesis? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. We'll save that for another, for I'm another not a, day. Yeah, I'm not. A, I, <laughs> not that I I'm not know. taking steroids. <laughs> Um, yeah. but just, it was just, just a, some HGH. A just, yeah, just a little, just a little HGH, just a smidge. It was just a thought that popped into my mind. Um, last, uh, protein question are some sources better than others? That's a great question. I think, yeah. So I'll say this protein quality. There are a few things to consider how quick, how easily it is to digest the protein, the essential amino acid content which essential amino acids are the amino acids that it's essential we get out of our diet because we can't synthesize them, right? So we want to choose proteins that have a lot of them. And then also for athletes, it's really important, the, the BCAA content or specifically the leucine content because those are the amino acids that actually stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So in that context, taking those three uh, criteria, animal-based protein is way better than plant-based protein. Plant-based protein has a lower digestive efficiency. It's a misconception that plant-based proteins are, are incomplete. It's, you know, an incomplete protein means that it doesn't contain all essential amino acids. There are a lot of plant-based protein that contain all of the essential amino acids, where the problem becomes is when we get significantly lower levels of certain essential amino acids. 
Um, so that's another reason plant-based proteins don't measure up quite as high on the protein quality scale as animal proteins. And then thirdly, plant-based proteins tend to be lower in leucine. So they don't have as high of BCAA levels. Does that mean that you can't be a great athlete and have huge jacked muscles if you're a vegan? Of course you can, right? But you have to be more mindful of your diet. You have to eat even more protein. You know, there are, there are strategies to combat that. And usually what I recommend is you have to eat even more protein than, you know, your animal-based counterpart to make up for that lower digestive efficiency, to make up for those lower levels of amino acids, potentially including plant-based protein uh, powders is a good way that kind of usually have, they usually have higher levels of amino acids and they're easier to digest or including something like BCAAs could also be helpful. But in a nutshell, yes, there, there is, there are different, <laughs> better proteins than others. And then just a smidge of HGH would help too. <laughs> just kidding. Just Nobody little... listening. Take that. Don't take it. Don't do it. Don't Back. do it. <laughs> Back, don't do it. <laughs> just kidding. Nobody. Nobody uh, do it. Um, yeah. Okay. So that, that makes total sense and that's very good information. Um, so just to transition now from, from the macronutrients, last time you were on this podcast, we delved into a little bit of supplements, more so creatine. Um, I guess here's the big, here's a big question before we get into some of the other supplements that you recommend. Just the last couple of questions on creatine, 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 <laughs> that we have been getting asked in the gym. One big one is when to take it. Yeah, so there's some research showing that uh, creatine can be helpful if taken after, even before or after. It can help with recovery of the workout you just did. There's not a ton of research on it. I generally recommend just taking it when it's most convenient for you. Most of the benefits that we discussed last time are not time dependent. It's more consistency dependent. Mm. So taking that powder and then this sip of water right before a workout's okay. Dry scooping it. Dry scooping uh, it. No. That's not good. <laughs> Dry scooping creatine would be terrible. It would be terrible. <laughs> Sorry, I've been um, doing that for the last couple of weeks, actually. Wait, you have? <laughs> I have. Oh, shit. <laughs> He never bl brings a blender bottle. I'm like, why don't you get a shaker, dude? He's got like a little Dixie cup. He fucking mixes his oh, BCAs in. We need to send you a shaker. Yeah. Um, uh, another question. So we didn't touch on this in that episode. Someone asked about creatine HCL. Have you heard of it? I believe this individual said it was easier to for the body to absorb, more bioavailable perhaps. Have you heard? Yeah, that's marketing spiel. Ooh, got it. Yeah, to I mean, there the studies that I've shown, I've seen comparing the two, no difference yeah. between creatine HCL and creatine monohydrate, and most of the studies are done with creatine monohydrate. Um, so, just in terms of the efficacy, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced that creatine HCL. I haven't seen anything that has convinced me that it's a better form, and when I see companies that use creatine HCL that use that as their reason. I have, I don't never see any research studies connect, connected with those claims. So got it. I wouldn't say that it is, it's absorbed more poorly, but I wouldn't say it's absorbed better. Right. Either. 
I guess the other thing that he said that's now coming to my mind is he said he would take creatine monohydrate and it would, um, I believe he said it would make him pee a lot. And I think he said it also bloated him. And then when he started taking HCL, he did not have those experiences. He's a special person. I'm not sure what to do. <laughs> Hear that, Joey? I You're special. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> there, there's a whole paper on, you know, myths of creatine that they like assign each myth to um, a different research scientist who addressed the, each of those myths. And, yeah. Um, all of those were relative to creatine monohydrate and it's not a diuretic, so it wouldn't make you pee more. Um, it is stored with water similar to glycogen. We talked about that before. So that's why um, you can gain some water weight, although many people don't. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, like the, the bloated, I'm guessing, is the water weight because essentially when you feel bloated, your increased water weight that has nothing to do with creatine form. Because the more creatine you store in your muscles, the more water you're going to store. And so if he's storing less water, potentially he's not storing as much creatine. I don't know what to tell you about that. But mm. I mean, it, it's, there, is, there are differences in how people respond to creatine. There are creatine non-responders. There are people that store more water than others. And so potentially he just responds to that form of creatine better. And I'm glad he was able to discover that. And also maybe he was getting some pretty stepped on shit as it relates to his creatine <laughs> monohydrate. Find a better creatine dealer, bro. Oh, That's what he needs to do. Uh, but moving on from the creatine talk, what else is on your recommended list of supplements? So definitely uh, vitamin D. I mean, we talked about that a little bit. I, I think that everybody should take the time to get a nutrition panel to get their vitamin D levels measured. Um, to find out if they're deficient and if they are supplement. I think most people don't get enough sunshine during the winter. And so supplementing, whether or not you get it tested with a moderate amount of vitamin D, like a thousand I use is a really good idea. It can have implications on as far as if you get sick and the severity to which you get sick. I think if you don't eat a lot of fatty fish, and that's not part of your regular diet. And when I say regular, like on a weekly basis, potentially an omega-3 supplement can be great. There's a lot of research showing good for inflammation, good for blood markers um, relating to cholesterol, really good for brain health. If you don't eat a lot of fermented food, probiotics can be a great idea. I'm a big fan of incorporating fermented food in your diet. So Sauerkraut. You know, kimchi, make mm, it at home. Kimchi. Both are really fun to make. Yeah. I think that, you know, if you, that's just not something that appeals to you, then probiotics can be a great idea as well. Let's see. What else? What else? Magnesium can be a good idea, uh, especially in conjunction with vitamin D. So there's a lot of research showing that, well, so magnesium is needed to turn vitamin D into its active form. And when they've supplemented people that are deficient in vitamin D, they actually have a, they're more effective at correcting that deficiency when vitamin D is given with magnesium than when it's given alone. That's because a lot of people are also deficient in magnesium. So might not be a bad idea to take magnesium along with the vitamin D. It can also help with people. I've heard people say that it helps with sleep or helps them to relax in the evening. Um, if you're vegan, iron and B12, really important. I think those are my my big ones 
Love it. That's good. So uh, what we'll do, we're going to fast forward. We have these list of questions that we want to ask you from the members. Turns out it's going to be a lightning round because we're running short on time. So that's perfect. So some of these have already kind of been answered in the podcast. This first one we can brush over. Don't worry. It's just a silly guy that goes to our gym. If I drink bone broth, will I have hair like Thomas? (laughs) Has collagen in it. This is true. Boom. Michael Nelson, drink your bone broth. (laughs) Uh, Next question. High cal breakfast question mark. Uh, It's not a very well phrased question. Yes or no on a high cal breakfast. Uh, They gave a reference range of (laughs) 800 to 1200 calories, like potentially in a smoothie, I think. Uh, I think that's a lot to have in one meal. Um, I would say, yeah, <laughs> I would say not a bad idea. Some high calories, if it's like a recovery kind of thing after a longer workout, but it seems like concentrating that many calories in the morning, unless, you know, you're the mountain might not be necessary. <laughs> He's not. <laughs> okay, cool. Boom. Got that one. Thoughts on beetroot juice. I'll give you some context here. The person likes to have it pre and during workout as a vasodilator. Good. Yes, no. Yeah. High in dietary nitrates. Dietary nitrates are a vasodilator. All right, Michael Nelson. I'll probably be taking beetroot (laughs) juice with you then. Um, Are smoothies bad for you with no sugar added? Uh, No, they're not bad for you. Easy, convenient way to get in calories you can you know add anything you want to them add a bunch of greens you can throw in some you know beetroot if you want Boom. throw in whatever you want i mean they're they're good and bad smoothies love depends it on what you put in them love it you can throw some dates in there too um let's see is it okay to eat dinner later than 8 p.m if i can't eat before my workout yes it's probably better than skipping dinner mm, mm. i like that uh, when do you need to supplement? Pro- well, first part of this question was, is protein the same plant-based versus meat-based? We answered that. When do you need to supplement protein? When it's convenient for you. So you might not need to ever supplement protein if you have enough time to make real food-based meals. But if you're running around like I normally do, or you just, you know, don't have 20 gram protein snack at hand and uh, it's a lot easier to get it from a smoothie or a protein shake then that makes sense i think they're they're foods of convenience yes uh protein too much or too little question mark i'm not sure what they mean by that i tend to go with too much yeah okay (laughs) okay good answer uh how can you measure if you're eating enough protein we kind of covered that we gave general recommendations uh Cramps after working out, dehydration, question mark? If it's after working out, I'd say dehydration and maybe electrolytes too low. If it's during working out, it could be a combination of those. It could also be relate intensity level related to where your fitness level is at. Got it. Gnarly hydrate. Boom. We got you covered, Kim. Best diet and workout for a skinny fat person. I gave you my uh, nutritional tenants at the beginning. Follow, Follow those. those. Follow those. <laughs> yes. Boom. Problem solved. Uh, I love these last two ones. And lift weights. And lift weights. And lift weights. Yes. Workout. Resistance training. Uh, last two. Beta alanine question mark. 
yeah. I mean, there's good research showing it helps you have similar to creatine, you have to take it consistently to see the benefit. So it's an intramuscular buffer, it's going to buffer hydrogen ion production, which is what increases acidity levels during high intensity exercise. So by lowering that acid level, you're increasing endurance because the acid rise in acidity is what leads to mu- leads to muscular failure. But you do have to take it consistently and it does cause that um, tingles tingle feeling hate it don't like that hate it won't do it i only Uh, take it before uh, a question tournaments you do take it before Mm jujitsu um (laughs) does the tingles go away over time do the tingles go yeah do the tingles go away over time sorry grammar's (laughs) Um, getting a little shoddy at the end here (laughs) uh no they i mean i think you you get kind of used to them and different people like my husband can have two and a half grams and he doesn't get as many tingles as I do at like a gram. So different people have different reactions to it. But um, yeah, it's okay. something you'll always deal with. Got it. Last question. Citrulline. Well, it says citrulline plus malate question mark. Citrulline malate. Yeah. So citrulline, same thing as the beetroot. Citrulline gets converted to arginine in our bodies. Arginine, um, stimulates the same pathway, the nitric oxide pathway that nitrates do in beet juice. Vasodilator increases blood flow. Malate feeds into the Krebs cycle and there's some evidence that it increases ATP production. So put them together and you get both of those things. Damn. She's beast mode. Killed it. That was excellent lightning round work. Right on. Well done. And with that, you want to hit the tagline? Avoid the bullshit. There we go. Thank Boom. you again. Thank you again, Dr. Shannon O'Grady. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. All right. Yeah, this was fun. Thank you again for listening to the P13 podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a five-star rating. This podcast was produced by Project 13 Gyms. And a special thanks to Studio Pod Media for providing the studio space and additional production. Absolutely. You can find us on social media on Instagram at Project 13 Gyms. You can find myself at... Hemifan, that is K-E-M-I-F-A-N. How about you, Thomas? Where can they find you on your social media? You can find me at Conway Bunga. That's C-O-N-W-A-Y-B-U-N-G-A. You can also check us out at project13gyms.com. And if you're in the SF area, come train with us at Project 13 Gyms in Lower Knob Hill.